Hello and welcome to SSI Live. You've long known the Strategic Studies Institute, or SSI, at the U.S. Army War College as the go-to location for issues related to national security and military strategy with an emphasis on geostrategic analysis. SSI conducts strategic research and analysis to support the U.S. Army War College curricula, assist and inform Army, DOD, and U.S. government leadership, and serve as a bridge to the wider strategic community. Now we're bringing you access to SSI analyses, scholars, and guests through this, the SSI Live podcast series. Thanks for joining us. Hello, my name is John Denny, and I'm a research professor of national security studies here at the Strategic Studies Institute at the U.S. Army War College. Today, I'm joined again by my SSI colleague, Dr. Chris Mason, also a research professor of national security affairs and a specialist in Central and South Asia. During the last episode of SSI Live, Chris and I talked in detail about the fall of Afghanistan and what some of the key elements were, the, the, the key explanatory variables, if you will, that help us to understand how that government fell and what we might see going forward. Today, I've invited Chris back to open up the aperture a bit beyond Afghanistan. Uh, we'll certainly discuss Afghanistan to some degree, but uh, the discussion today is going to focus a little more broadly on this issue of stability operations, uh, counterinsurgency, foreign internal defense, the kind of thing that the U.S. military and its allies were, or the U.S. government and its allies were attempting to do in Afghanistan, have attempted to do in Iraq and elsewhere around the world. So, Chris, welcome. Let me get right to it, Chris. And shortly after you arrived at SSI, you wrote a, a book entitled The Strategic Lessons Unlearned from Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan, Why the Afghan National Security Forces Will Not Hold and the Implications for the U.S. Army in Afghanistan. Now, I recall at that time that that was not exactly you know, a, a popular take, shall we say, within Army circles. Uh, it was certainly a, 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 pestim- a, a rather pessimistic conclusion you draw there just from the title. But can you tell us, can you put for us what we've seen unfold recently in uh, in a historical context? You've compared it to Vietnam already. How would you compare this intervention to others that we've had, the U.S. has engaged in, uh, in terms of uh, the scale, the scope, the outlook for success, etc.? In other words, is Afghanistan just sort of par for the course for these uh, for interventions, uh, stability operations, and so so forth? Well, you know, since for the last seven years, um, since since 2014, I've been the director of a research project at the Strategic Studies Institute called the Study of Internal Conflict, uh, and we have analyzed now uh, uh, some 60 case studies. Uh, of internal conflicts, insurgencies, and civil wars since the end of World War II, looking for the commonalities of government failure uh, and to, to determine that a political military factor was a commonality in government failure. It had to appear in at least 90% of government losses uh, in internal conflicts since the end of World War II. And we found five discrete factors, each one of which individually was fatal to governments uh, in at least 94% of all cases. So in other words, uh, if if two times out of 50, uh, the factor was not present, uh, you know, that would be uh, a 94% or 96% uh, failure rate 
for that factor. In other words, it was present 48 times, but not present twice. Uh, so we would say then that that was a 96% commonality uh, of failure. And those five factors uh, appear uh, in, in virtually all government failures in internal conflict. Uh, two of them are just simple binary factors. The, the existence of a cross-border sanctuary for, uh, for rebel forces and the existence or non-existence of a sustainable standing army at the start of the conflict. Uh, if the rebels have cross-border sanctuary, uh, that is fatal for uh, governments uh, over the long run in, uh, in every case. We have not identified a case since 1945 in which the rebels had external sanctuary, maintained that sanctuary all the way through the end of the conflict. In other words, the government could not uh, shut down the cross-border sanctuary. Uh, that was fatal in 100% of cases. If there were no standing security forces at the start of the conflict, which doesn't happen very often because most countries have security forces, but if there was not uh, a sustainable standing army, as there was not in Iraq, for example, or in Afghanistan, for example, the government lost 100% of those conflicts too. But then we also found three factors that we called the rule of 85s because the threshold for each of the factors was 85%. Uh, and those three factors were national identity, legitimacy of governance, and protection of the population from contact with the insurgents or, or the guerrilla movement. So in cases where uh, governments were perceived uh, by their population, by uh, less than 85% of their population as legitimate, uh, it, those, those governments lost in 96% uh, of all of the 60-some insurgencies that have been studied. The same number, 85%, uh, is true also of protection of the population. Countries which could not isolate at least 85% of their population from any sort of meaningful contact with the insurgents, uh, and, and we closely defined what you know, meaningful contact uh, was uh, uh, meant, uh, but if a government could not uh, and did not isolate at least 85% of its population from contact with the rebel forces. They lost in 94% of all cases. And finally, uh, the idea of legitimacy, uh, sorry, um, the, the final, the, the final uh, rule of, of 85s, uh, if you were, uh, was national identity. Uh, in in, in in, all, in at least 96% of all insurgencies in which at least 85% of the population did not express a national identity, uh, in other words, did not place their own personal sense of identity at the national level. Uh, you know, for example, you know, I am an American, uh, or someone might say I am Peruvian, or someone might say, you know, I am French. In uh, in 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 all in 96% of those cases where there was less than an, an 85% uh, national identity, uh, governments lost the conflict. So you can see that if any one of these factors is present, it's almost invariably fatal for government, uh, for, uh, for government, uh, uh, the government in power. Uh, and so when, when there are multiple factors, 
uh, more than one of those five factors uh, is present, uh, you know, then the way you calculate uh, statistical way, the way statistical analysis works across multiple morbidity factors uh, means that the survival uh, rate is effectively zero. Uh, so in other words, if only one of the five factors was true uh, in the in the 60-some cases studied since the end of World War II, there was uh, a, a marginal possibility uh, between 4 and 6% that a government might survive the conflict, uh, not uh, if there was external sanctuary for the rebels and not if they did not have uh, a standing army at the time uh, of the conflict. But in the case of the other three, the rule of 85s, uh, there was a, a, a slim chance, a 4 to 6% chance the government could survive. But if there was more than one of those things true, then the chances of uh, government survival were virtually nil. And in Afghanistan, all five of those factors uh, were against the government right from the start. The Afghan government never got anywhere near 85% legitimacy. Uh, Ashraf Ghani got the votes of perhaps 7% of eligible Afghan voters in the most recent presidential election. Uh, the percentage of Afghans who would put their identity at the national level as opposed to the tribal level or the ethno-linguistic level or the religious level uh, perhaps is 20%. Uh, uh, the, the percentage of the population that was protected uh, from contact with the Taliban probably 20, 25%, uh, you know, in other words, far below the 85% level necessary. The Taliban had external sanctuary, which is invariably fatal, and there was no standing army uh, at the time the government was created in 2002, which again is uh, invariably fatal. So, I mean, there was essentially no chance, statistically, that this was going to work. Uh, I think uh, in the case of South Vietnam, at least four out of the five factors were present. You could argue that there was uh, a standing army. Uh, you know, there there were some forces that had fought for the French uh, that during the DM administration from 1955 until U.S. ground troops arrived in 1965. There was an army there, um, but I don't think that uh, you could make a, a credible claim that there was a South Vietnamese national identity uh, separate and distinct from. Uh, a Vietnamese identity, a pan-Vietnamese identity, uh, and uh, and certainly um, the, the South Vietnamese government never came close to protecting 85% of the South Vietnamese people from contact with, uh, with Viet Cong guerrillas. So I, mean, I don't think there was ever any possibility that uh, the, 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 the incursion into Afghanistan uh, and the effort uh, at nation building was going to work. Um, we can talk about that in more detail, but, uh, you know, nation building is an oxymoron. Uh, nations are not built. They, they accrete over almost geological time, They're like stalagmites and stalactites. And nations don't coalesce in a period of 10 years or 20 years. I think you could argue that a South Korean identity, uh, as distinct from a North Korean identity, coalesced uh, in the last 25 years perhaps. Um, uh, but I think there was a lot more to work with there. Uh, South Korea had a common religion, a common language, a common ethnicity, 
uh, a common identity, none of which was present in Afghanistan. There are more languages, more first languages spoken in Afghanistan than there are in Europe. Uh, so, I mean, there just wasn't a, a possibility of creating a nation there. And governments that are not nations don't win uh, internal conflicts. You know, Chris, that's a sobering conclusion, a sobering assessment of how things uh, were perhaps destined to not go uh, the way the U.S. had hoped in Afghanistan. Folks that study this, uh, study security cooperation and uh, stability operations, argue that there are some successes that places like Colombia uh, and uh, our efforts there under the auspices of so-called Plan Colombia and uh, our efforts in the Philippines are examples of success. Have, have you examined some of these examples uh, in your most recent work? And what, what's your sense of where there are success? What, ex what explains that? We should, yeah, we, we have. Um, and it, it turns out that uh, these cases where uh, the governments uh, stayed in power uh, and no uh, breakaway region like Kosovo, for example, or East Timor, was successful in establishing an independent country uh, like, for example, uh, uh, Colombia, uh, Malaya, the Malayan emergency, uh, the Philippines. Each one of these cases were, in fact, cases where all five of the political military factors I just identified were in favor of the government. For example, at least 85% of the Colombian population has since the 1920s, since the, the, the period known as La Violencia, the original Marxist violence that's, that, that sparked up in the countryside in the 1920s. Uh, since then, at least 85% of the people of Colombia have considered their government to be legitimately in power. At least 85% of the population of Colombia came under government control as a result of changing demographics in Colombia. In other words, in the 1920s, about 20% of the Colombian population was urban and 80% of the population was rural. What tipped the tide uh, or, or what, uh, what, what, what tipped the scales in the Colombian conflict was a, a massive demographic shift over a period of almost 100 years in which now more than 80% of the population of Colombia is urban. And urban populations can be protected and isolated from contact with guerrilla forces. So what won the conflict in Colombia was not any sort of counterinsurgency measures or plan Colombia. It was a demographic shift that enabled the Colombian government to get at least 85 percent of its population protected from and isolated from the rebel movement. Uh, at least 90, at least 85 percent. It's close to 100% of the Colombian population identifies itself as Colombian. If you ask someone in Colombia, who are you? They say, I'm Colombian, you know, not I'm a Hivero Indian or, or, you know, I'm from this province or from, I'm from that province. They say, I'm Colombian. Uh, there was no meaningful cross-border sanctuary for any of the rebel movements uh, it, during, uh, during the Colombian conflict. Uh, you could, a few people could straggle through the jungle across the border and be technically on, on Venezuelan soil. Uh, but, you know, it was in a deadly uh, green uh, wasteland uh, where we're just surviving. It uh, was extremely difficult out there. Uh, so it wasn't cross-border sanctuary. Colombian forces could and did go across the border, so it wasn't really sanctuary. And the Colombians had an army. 
uh, well before the 1920s. There was a pre-existing Colombian army uh, that, that, you know, that met the, the criteria of being sustainable, uh, reasonably competent, and having a hierarchical structure which responded to civil authority. So in the case of Colombia, all five of those political military factors were, in fact, in favor of the government. The same was true of the Malayan emergency. The same is true in the Philippines. These five laws of, of internal conflict uh, are, are pretty close to science. Uh, you know, they're certainly political science. Uh, and there are not any cases in which, uh, you know, the, the, the techniques of counterinsurgency, uh, you know, such as clear hold and build or, or pacification have ever had uh, any sort of positive effect on uh, any of those five factors. Um, we did a lot of research into uh, looking for evidence that, um, you know, uh, uh, counterinsurgency methods like clear, hold and build, building hospitals, roads, schools, what have you, ever uh, increased the legitimacy of the government or even increased popular support for the government. And we found literally zero evidence that counterinsurgency methods uh, had ever increased support for the government or the legitimacy of the government by even 1%. There's no evidence to support that uh, uh, that doctrine at all. And there's a lot of evidence. There are a lot of reports, uh, a whole big stack of reports uh, that show there was no increase. In other words, people did uh, studies or surveys uh, before and after uh, pacification efforts or clear hold and build efforts, and there was 0% increase uh, in support for legitimacy of, of the government. Uh, so, I mean, counterinsurgency doctrine is wrong. Uh, it doesn't work. I think if you were going to say that you had a cure for cancer uh, and you, you, know, you wanted people to take your, your cure for cancer, you would have to have at least some evidence uh, that your cure for cancer uh, actually worked somewhere at some point. You know, it had helped one person get better. And in fact, uh, you know, the, the counterinsurgency doctrine that's uh, that's laid out in Field Manual uh, 3-24 uh, doesn't have any empirical evidence to support uh, that that line of action at all. I mean, literally none. Chris, let me ask you to pull out your crystal ball here. What does tomorrow look like in Afghanistan writ large? In other words, the Taliban claims to now have control over the uh, the entire country. Certainly in Kabul, we know. Uh, there's word uh, in news this week that there are perhaps some holdouts in the Panjshir Valley, not uh, far from Kabul. But uh, they claim, the Taliban claims to have now succeeded in taking over the country. You've laid out in discussing with us here uh, Afghanistan's uh, history and its, its lack of central government authority you've laid out a picture for us of a country that is almost impossible to control in a, in a very centralized way. Where do you see things heading there? Is this a country that is simply destined to be mired in uh, uh, internal conflict? Uh, are the Taliban going to take more of a decentralized approach? Is that their MO? Is that their practice? What do you see uh, playing out here, let's say, over the next year or so? I think that's a, a complex question. Um, I, I published an article last week in Real Clear Defense uh, entitled The War in Afghanistan is Not Over, 
uh, because, in fact, um, the Taliban only control, as you noted, uh, 33 out of 34 provinces in Afghanistan. The, the Panjshir Valley uh, is still in government hands. Uh, the, 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 the legal uh, uh, president of Afghanistan, uh, under both international law and the Afghan constitution, is still on Afghan soil. Amrullah Saleh, uh, the first vice president, uh, is in the Panjshir uh, and so, uh, technically, um, you know, uh, again, under both international law and the Afghan constitution, you know, the, the, the legitimate government of Afghanistan or the legal government of Afghanistan uh, is, is still on Afghan soil. Uh, and so, um, and there are uh, uh, indications of some resistance to Taliban rule in other parts of Afghanistan as well. I think that the Taliban will have a difficult time imposing their writ over the entire country. But uh, in, from 1996 to 2001, they allowed a considerable degree of local and regional uh, flexibility uh, in enforcing uh, their, their mandates. Um, for example, uh, uh, girls going to school uh, or women working in, in, in parts of the rural of Afghanistan, uh, those levels were zero. Whereas in Kabul, for example, there was a very small number of uh, girls who could go to school uh, under certain conditions and a very small number of women doctors, uh, medical professionals who were allowed to work in strictly uh, gender segregated uh, hospital wards and so on. Uh, and um, the, the, the eastern part of Afghanistan, uh, the area around Nangahar, uh, Jalalabad city is quite independent uh, in um, in its uh, you know its outlook always has been. Uh, it's a different uh, tribal conglomeration or different uh, tribal federation down in, in the Nangarhar region, uh, and uh, they during from 1996 to 2001 they basically told the Taliban, uh, you know, okay, you can fly your flag here and say that you're in control. Uh, but, you know, don't come down here and tell us, uh, you know, how to do our business. So um, the, the, the Taliban is going to allow a certain amount, I think, of, of regional autonomy within a, a, a narrow bandwidth of, of what they're going to accept. Uh, they're also going to have a serious problem uh, now with uh, with ISIS Khorasan or ISIS K, uh, the ISIS offshoot. Uh, that has taken root in Nangarhar province that was responsible for uh, the terrorist bombing at the Kabul airport uh, last week that claimed over 200 lives. Uh, they're going to have difficulty uh, containing ISIS-K now uh, without, uh, you know, without a, a, a U.S. counterterrorism presence in the country. Uh, they're also going to be contending with an economy that's going to crater. Uh, U.S. Uh, and, and other Western financial support to the Taliban government paid more than 90 percent of the operating costs of the Afghan government uh, uh, every year. Uh, and of course, now those those revenues, that support is going to zero out. Uh, the Afghani, the, the national currency of Afghanistan is now at an all time low. Uh, I think foreign investment will, will be close to zero uh, in Afghanistan, making it very difficult for uh, the Taliban uh, to, um, you know, to even keep the lights on, uh, you know, and, 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 and uh, you know, pay for trash collection and that sort of thing. 
The only exception to that, I think, is China and possibly Russia as well. But uh, I think China has already, uh, you know, conducted uh, closed door negotiations with the Taliban to get access to uh, first uh, Afghanistan's copper uh, resources at the Messinac copper mines uh, near Kabul, uh, which they tried and failed to extract about a decade ago due to a lack of security and the corruption, uh, 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 the endemic corruption of the Afghan government. I think China may be willing to provide the Taliban with some suitcases full of cash in exchange for security around Messinac. And I think that's probably practicable. I think you could probably get the copper out of that if you had good security around there. China is also interested in the lithium deposits in Afghanistan, however, and I don't think there's any reasonable prospect of getting those out of the ground. Uh, the, the, the industrial infrastructure required uh, to mine uh, heavy metal uh, is, is enormous. Uh, megawatts of electricity, vast amounts of water, uh, you know, a, rail, a functioning rail system, uh, thousands of qualified workers with, with, uh, with deep earth mining skills. Uh, it's just I mean, none of those things exists in Afghanistan and probably never will. Well, Chris, the future of Afghanistan, as well as American and Western efforts in other countries in terms of counterinsurgency and stability operations are sure to be topics that we're going to want to invite you back to address. But for now, thank you so much for uh, shedding light, uh, shedding more light on these topics for us and for helping us better understand uh, the events surrounding the fall of the government of Afghanistan. Uh, thanks, John. I look forward to coming back again soon. You can now find SSI Live on TuneIn Radio and on popular podcast directories like Stitcher and at the iTunes Store. If you have any comments on our podcasts, thoughts on what you'd like to see addressed, or a response to something you heard here at SSI Live, please go to our website. That's ssi.armywarcollege.edu. Find me, John Denny, in the staff directory, and send me an email. I look forward to hearing from you. For the SSI Live podcast series, I'm John Denny. Thanks for listening.